Now, just before Terry comes back to read the scripture passage, I want to give you a preview of it, of explain what's going on. Now, for those of you who don't come here regularly, as we read scripture, what we learn from scripture itself is that God speaks to us predominantly, primarily, most reliable, most reliably through the Bible. But he wrote this originally, or he, he spoke through other people originally, oh, 1,500 years or more ago. No, 2,500 years or more ago. And so it's not intuitive for us to understand. Now, because there's a lot of Hebrew names in this passage, Terry will only read part of it. But let me tell you, let me show you what's going on in the passage as a whole. So Joshua 14 to 15 is all one section. All one coherent passage. It breaks down into four pieces. And last week we looked at two, and this week we'll look at a different two. First, it introduces Caleb, who's allotted land. And then the whole clan of Judah. Caleb's a member of the clan of Judah. First, Caleb is allotted land as an individual. And then Judah is allotted land, the whole clan. And then Caleb conquers two towns in his land. And then Judah is allotted towns that is yet to conquer. So you've got this progression from Caleb to Judah, from Caleb to Judah. And so last week, what we looked at was Caleb. And we saw that, you know, that this pattern, Caleb, Judah, Caleb, Judah, exists because Caleb is a hero and he's introduced as a role model for the whole clan. And so Caleb becomes a role model for the clan, how they're to respond as God gives them land and calls them to conquer towns. Now this week, logically enough, we're going to focus on the other two parts, the parts we skipped one last time, about clan Judah being allotted the land and then clan Judah being identified, being allotted certain towns to conquer. And that's all that this section takes up. It comes in two parts. In chapter 15, 1 to 12, the clan is allotted land. And then in the second half, 1520 to 63, it's allotted towns to conquer. And as Terry reads it, what you'll see is this is what it is. It's a geographical elaboration. So the land, first it, we're given the southern boundary, then the eastern boundary, then the northern boundary, then the western boundary. And then the towns first identified are the towns in the south, then the towns in the west, then the towns in the hills, then the towns in the desert. And finally wraps it up all with an epilogue. So Terry will read part of this with a lot of Hebrew names, and then I'll come back and explain what God would have to say to us through it. Today's reading comes from the book of Joshua, chapter 15, verses 1 through 12, and can be found on page 162 of your pew Bible. Joshua 15. The allotment for the tribe of Judah, clan by clan, extended down to the territory of Edom, to the desert of Zin in the extreme south. Their southern boundary started from the bay at the southern end of the Salt Sea, crossed south of Scorpion Pass, continued on to Zin, and went over to the south of Kadesh Barnea. Then it ran past Hezron up to Adar and curved around the Karka. It then passed along Asmum and joined the Wadi of Egypt, ending at the sea. This is their southern boundary. The eastern boundary is the Salt Sea, as far as the mouth of the Jordan. 
The northern boundary started from the Bay of the Sea at the mouth of the Jordan, went up to Beth Hoglah, and continued north to Beth Arabah to the stone of Bohan, son of Reuben. The boundary went up to Debir from the Valley of Acre and turned north to Gilgal, which faces the pass of Adamim south of the gorge. It continued along to the waters of En Shemesh and came out at En Rogel. Then it ran up to the valley of Ben-Himon along the southern slope of the Jebusite city, that is, Jerusalem. From there it climbed to the top of the hill west of the Himmon Valley at the northern end of the valley of Raphaim. From the hilltop, the boundary headed toward the spring of the waters of Nephtoah and came out at the towns of Mount Ephraim and went down toward Bala, that is, Kiriath-Jerim. Then it curved westward from Bala to Mount Seir, ran along the northern hope of Mount Jerim, that is, Kesselon, continued down to Beth Shemesh, and crossed to Timnah. It went to the northern slope of Ekron, turned toward Shekharan, passed along to Mount Bala, and reached Jabnil. The boundary ended at the sea. The western boundary is the coastline of the Great Sea. These are the boundaries around the people of Judah by their clans. May God bless the reading of his word. So we're recruiting more scripture readers. So if you'd like to do this sort of thing, be sure to have a word with Gerald. I wonder if you've ever seen someone succeed and gotten jealous or envious about it. Or even if you don't want to call it jealousy, because we know jealousy is a bad thing. I wonder if you've ever seen somebody succeed or get what you wanted in life and ask God, how come they got it and I didn't get it? Maybe there's people in your social circle you know that were born with the looks and brains and the personality that you wish you had. Or maybe some of your friends got into a college or grad school that you wanted to get into and couldn't. Or maybe it's a little later in life and it was the job they got or the company or the salary or the promotion at work. Or they used all that to buy the house that's bigger than yours and newer than yours and fancier than yours and you think, I wish I could have that. Or they got the girl or the man that you had your eye on. Or maybe it's later still in life and you see their kids doing really well in school and yours are a struggle or the kids run around really entirely personable, cute and amusing and your kids are kind of grumpy and moody. You know, when we see people who are more successful and wealthy or whose kids are doing better, how do you handle that sort of thing? Now, this kind of thing happens also in pastoral ministry, you see. It's really hard to pick up a Christian book today without the back of it giving a description of the pastor and saying where he stands in the hierarchy of the fastest growing church. This author is pastor of the 15th fastest growing church in America. 
You know, and you can see churches that grow faster, grow bigger. None of them have better looking people than ours, but some of them grow faster or smarter people. None of them have, you know, a lot of our worship team is in a wedding in Seattle. And I would say this sincerely. Very few churches have as many pianists and violinists as our church. So I thank your parents for flipping this on you because when... When a member of our worship team gets married and takes all the worship team to play at her wedding in Seattle, at least we have other people that can fill in for our worship team. Now, you know, and and I really don't have the ambition to have the fastest growing church, but what I do enjoy doing with some of my spare time, really I want to have the pastoral contact with people and walk through crisis with people that you can do in a church our size, you can't do in a massive church. But what I do have a greater interest in doing is a bit more time for research and writing than what I typically have. More on that later. And without a platform, nowadays writing books is really about selling books. And so if you're a pastor of a big church, you can write rubbish as long, because your friends will buy it. If you're a pastor of a medium-sized church, then even if you write good stuff, and, and often I read a book and I think, oh, I got that figured out better than he did. I could write a more coherent book. Notice I didn't say more interesting because that's not my forte, but at least more coherent. You might not want to read it, but it would be right. <laughs> you know, so jealousy can, professional jealousy or personal jealousy can grip us all. And it gets even worse if they succeeded because of lucky breaks. Or, you know, probably every company has these kind of guys. They're not as competent as you are, but they've got a personality, and they manage to schmooze the boss, and they get ahead that way. And you think, duh, you know. All the more so if you worship God and they don't, and you say, you know, God, I'm, I worship you. They don't. They're not yours. Or, or, or I serve. You know, you, you spend your time serving in church, and then people who don't serve in church have more time for, say, studies, or work longer hours, and they get ahead faster. You know, there's any, any number of opportunities for jealousy to come up. And even if we don't make it about comparison, how come they're doing better than I'm doing? Even if it's just between us and God, it's easy enough to think. God, why is my life so challenging and their lives so straightforward? Why do I struggle to make it through one crisis after another and they just smooth sailing all the way? Now, I'm going to test how much you watch reruns of movies. Remember, for those of you who remember back to 1984 or have seen the movie in rerun, remember the movie Amadeus with the ironic title. Why did they choose his middle name, Mozart's middle name for that movie? Amadeus means love God. And so the movie was a parable or, or a reflection, a meditation on loving God. Now, the movie is not, it's based on a play from the 1830s and then redone in the 1900s. It's not historically accurate. As near as historians can tell us, it's all rubbish. But, but it made a, a good movie and it's an, a suitable illustration for the point here. Because you had two main characters. The gifted genius, Mozart, 
the gifted, boorish, selfish genius Mozart, and Salieri, the uh, operatist, uh, the, 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 who wrote operas and served God, or thought he was serving God, with his life. And Salieri sees Mozart coming on the scene and flamboyant and gifted. And Salieri was a plotter all of his life. And Salieri, in the course of the movie, says this. All I wanted was to sing to God. He gave me that longing. And then he made me mute. Why? Tell me that. If God didn't want me to praise him with music, why give me the desire? And if he did want me to praise him with music, why deny me the talent? And so later on, Salieri says, speaking to God, from now on, we are enemies, you and I. Because you chose for your instrument a boastful, lustful, smutty, infantile boy and gave me for reward only the ability to recognize his genius because you are unjust, unfair, and unkind. I will hinder and harm your creature on earth as far as I am able. And then Salieri set out to undermine, to submarine Mozart's career and then his life, according to the movie. Now this is the sort of issue that the today's text poses to us, particularly in juxtaposition to the portion of it that we saw yesterday, this contrast between Caleb and clan of Judah, Caleb and clan of Judah. What we saw last week, we saw that Caleb is a role model for the rest of us. Well, he was a role model for them, he's a role model for us. We see Caleb who served God. In front of him was an insurmountable obstacle. Caleb moved ahead. By the time we pick up this part of the story, he's 85 years old. He moved ahead. God took 45 years to fulfill a promise in his life. Even the first step of that promise took 45 years. He never saw the fulfillment of the entire promise. But the first step took 45 years. And Caleb stood by God, even in the face of insurmountable obstacles, even in the face of his own failings and weaknesses, even in the face of God's slowness over the course of 45 years. And because of that, God rewarded him and blessed him. And Caleb is a great moral model for them and for us. The message to us is be like Caleb. In the words of William Carey, expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. Caleb had done that. And we can do that. Now the striking feature of this section that we look at today is just the opposite. We have Caleb, a hero. And then he becomes a role model for the whole clan of Judah. And the story of Judah is the first of the clans. There's nine and a half clans, so eight and a half more will follow. But Judah takes primary place. It appears first in all the nine and a half. And then there's more discussion of Judah. The text spends much longer on Judah than any of the other eight and a half. You know, all the boundaries in de great detail. And then all the long list of cities. You know, if you think the, te uh, the text was challenging, Terry read only the boundaries. He didn't have to go through all the individual cities. A lot of detail. 
at great length. Why? Because Judah became the most important clan. Out of all 12 clans, nine and a half here, two and a half mentioned earlier, out of all 12 clans, Judah was the most important in the history of Israel. And the question becomes, why? Why was Judah so strategic? Why was it so important? Why doesn't it get such a primary place in Scripture? Why Judah? It would be easy in this context. We see Caleb was a hero. He gives prominent place. We see the clan of Judah. We could assume that they were the best. They were the biggest. They were the best. They had the best patriarch and all that. But it's not so. God blessed Caleb because he was a hero. The question comes up, why did God bless the clan of Judah? Was it because the clan was so noble? Was it because their founding member, their patriarch, was so noble? And not at all. God blessed Judah in spite of Judah. God blessed Caleb because of Caleb. God blessed Judah in spite of Judah. Let's take a look at it first. I'll skim over. We won't turn to all these passages. But consider what Judah was. For those of you who know the story, consider what he was like as a patriarch. There were 12 patriarchs, 12 leaders, 12 uh, progenitors of the nation of Israel. Genesis chapter 5, we read about Judah, that he was born forth. Forth, you see. In a culture where the firstborn was more important, he was born forth, and yet he becomes the most prominent. In Genesis 3 and 7, 37, a lot of you would know the Joseph story, how his brothers sold him into slavery and then he was transported over. He's, they sold him to slavery to foreigners who then took him to another country and sold him again, resold him as a slave, and then he, he went through prison and, and terrible life in Egypt. It was Judah who came up with the brilliant idea of selling his brother into slavery. Genesis 38, Judah's sons marry a woman and, and died. And according to the custom of that day, the woman married another son and he died. And, and the woman's got no one to look after her financially. She's got no one to give her an heir for her, her husband's uh, descent. So the woman comes to Judah and says, give me another son. And Judah said, sure, sure, sure. Just wait a little while until he gets older. And then he ignored his daughter-in-law. He didn't look after her financially. He didn't provide for, the, for her to have offspring. He wouldn't give her the other son. So here you have the fourth-born, not the first-born. Here you have a guy who's such a vicious brother, so envious he would sell his brother into slavery, foreign slavery. Here you have somebody who refused to provide for his daughter-in-law, according to the custom. And then in Genesis 38, Judah slips in to see a prostitute while he's away on business. You've got a, a vicious brother, an unsympathetic father-in-law, and a lecherous old man. Not what you'd expect in the person God chooses to bless. Even with that history, Judah becomes the leader of all the brothers. You look at Genesis chapter 43, and while they're in Egypt trying to negotiate for some grain, it's Judah that steps forward. And negotiates. Not the first brother, not the second brother, not the third brother. The fourth brother steps forward and negotiates. And chapter, Genesis chapter 44. In Genesis chapter 43, it's the fourth brother that becomes the spokesman to the father. Genesis 49. 
Jacob blesses all of his children. They gather around his bed as he's dying, and he gives them a blessing. And notice, here's what he said in Genesis 49. Here's what Jacob says about Judah. The scepter, uh, the ruler's scepter, the sign of being the ruler. The, the scepter will not, not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nation shall be his. In a culture which expects the father's blessing to be fulfilled, the father blesses not the first son, not the second son, not the third son, but, but Judah. And you could ask, why? He was a vicious brother, an unsympathetic father-in-law, and a lecherous old man. Why does his father bless him? And more than that, why does God honor that blessing? Because it was Judah's lineage that gave birth to King David. More spectacular than that, it was Judah's lineage that ruled Israel. But most spectacular of all, it's Judah's lineage that gave birth to Jesus. Now, we can look at Caleb and say, of course God honored that. Faced with insurmountable obstacles, he pursued God and moved ahead. Faced with declining age and growing weakness, he pursued God and moved ahead. Even though God took 45 years to answer even the first step of the first stage of the promise, he pursued God and stayed faithful. We can see why God blessed Jacob. But here you have Judah, an envious brother, an unsympathetic father-in-law, and a lecherous old man. And God blesses him. And he gives birth, his lineage gives birth to the King David, the most spectacular king they ever had, and gives birth to King Jesus, the Savior of the world. And you can wonder, God, it makes sense that God would bless those who are faithful to him and of noble character. But why Judah? Why would he and his clan prosper under the blessing of God, even though he's such a dubious character and his descendants were little better? What do we make of this? You see... We see the same sort of thing in our world. Sometimes we can see people who prosper and succeed, and, and we can understand God's blessing. They're noble character. They serve faithfully. They're generous. And it's appropriate that God bless them. And then we see other people in our lives who have no interest in God or no faithfulness to Him. And yet they do well. Or maybe even more perplexing, we see other people in our lives who are as faithful to God as Caleb might have been. And they struggle with life. I mean, I won't talk about details because it concerns us. But you know, you can look at, you know, if you have a lot of friends in this congregation, 
Occasionally you can see one family where everything just seems to come so easily. And you can see another family where it seems that everything's a struggle. That's not because of the personality, just because of the way life turns out. I've mentioned once, it's been years, one of my students in Singapore, a group of students who went away on a hiking trip. You know, maybe eight or ten of them went on a hiking trip up into the highlands of Malaysia. And in the course of the hiking trip, they were setting up camp one night. And one of the guys, you know, they were, they were going to cook dinner. So one of the guys called over to somebody else and said, Hey, bring me the, bring me the uh, burner, you know, the, the tank. And instead of walking it over, the guy just kind of threw it to him underhand to, so he'd catch it. But the throw was bad or the catch wasn't there and it, it hit the rock and split open. And, you know, there's a massive fireball. And they all got burned, but some worse than others. Uh, one of the women who was burned the worst gutted it out. And they, had, they, they were up in the middle of nowhere. They had to hike back down the mountain. So one of my students, one of my male students who was there, saw that woman hike down the m- mountain without complaining, even though she had burns over much of her body. And then when they finally got back to Singapore, she had to be warded in the hospital to recover. And he thought, this is the kind of woman I'd be interested in. Tough. Stands through life. So they got married. And then they've had three kids. And all of them have had suffered from the same genetic condition. So they get to be about six years old, seven years old. And then they start relapsing. And they relapse all the way back. They relapse to the point where they can't swallow. They can't eat. They can't talk. They can't sit up. They have to be strapped into wheelchairs. They go into convulsions. They have to be rushed to the hospital. They have tracheotomies and whatever. Three of them. And they had the first. This started happening. They had three kids. And then this started happening with the first. Because it doesn't start. The reversal doesn't start until about seven, seven or eight years old. And she started doing worse in school and worse in school. And they finally figured out. That it took them years to diagnose it because it's a very rare condition. And they got two more kids, already born, you know. And they watch. And it happens in a second. And then they know. And it happens to the third. And you think, as near as anyone else we know, they serve God. You know, you never know the secrets, but, but they, they, I mean, they went into ministry. They both went into ministry. They both went to seminary. They both went into ministry. And they serve serve God faithfully. And yet, so you see, it's people who serve God and rewarded, that makes sense. You see, people who s- don't serve God and are rewarded. And you say, what's, what's going on? And you see people who serve God and suffer. And you're trying to make sense out of this. This is, this is our kind of world. Scripture is realistic. If nothing else, it's at least realistic. Sometimes. We'll see people who serve God and God blesses. And sometimes we'll see people who don't serve God and God seems to bless. What do you do with it? Let me draw three lessons we can 
take from all of this? Three hopes. First of all, when we see people like Judah succeed, like his clan succeeded, when we see those who have no passion or or devotion to God do well, let's lift our eyes off of them and put our eyes onto Jesus because he will never disappoint. Remember what Jacob said to Judah in the blessing? The scepter will not depart from Judah and his descendants, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. In the end, this is not about Judah. In the end, this promise is about Jesus, because Hebrews picks up those same words and applies them not to Judah, but to Jesus. And it says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. The author of Hebrews takes, looks back at that promise of Judah, that promise that was picked up and repeated again in Psalm 45, and says, this is not about Judah. This is not about King David. This is about King Jesus. And he will never disappoint. He deserves all the worship, all the blessing. We can look at our human leaders and say, why? We can look at spiritual leaders, theoretically spiritual leaders, and say, if we know their lives, and say, why? Well, we can be disappointed. You can be disappointed by me. You can be disappointed by the pastoral staff in this church, by the elders, the deacons of this church. You can be disappointed by human spiritual leaders. You can be disappointed. We know may it never be like this in our church, but you can be disappointed by famous evangelists and authors around America that then implode and go off the rails. And we see it time after time. People that stand publicly for the name of Jesus and privately live much differently and are finally caught out. And we can say, God, how did you give them? Why did you give them such blessing? How did they succeed? But here is the promise. This is who it's really about. About the son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. And a scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom because you deserve it. You earn it. You are trustworthy and reliable. That's the first lesson we can draw from this. If we see spiritual leaders or we see successful people and we wonder why God has ever permitted that, what we say in response is this. Jesus will never let us down. And Jesus is rightly exalted above all else. A second lesson we can draw from this. As we compare ourselves with others, not a healthy pursuit, but you know we do it, right? As we compare ourselves with others and say, why is God blessing them and not me? A second lesson we can draw is this. We don't take this life as God's final verdict God's verdict is not reliably illustrated and demonstrated in this life. It's only at the end of time 
that the foolproof verdict is rendered. Do you want to know whether God approves of you or not? You can't reliably look at the circumstances of this life and know. Because sometimes the godly prosper. Sometimes the godly fail. And sometimes the ungodly succeed. There is no reliability in assessment by looking at this life. But here's what the Apostle Paul says about how to know who's truly, genuinely successful and blessed by God. The Apostle Paul writes, Judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Paul said this because people were looking at his ministry. People in the city of Corinth were looking at his, church, at his ministry. People in the church he planted and nourished were looking at his ministry and saying, no, nah, God doesn't bless you. They were looking at Apollos and the apostle Peter. They were looking at other apostles in the first century. Well, though, they have powerful ministries. You, 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 no, 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 no. God's blessing them. He's not blessing you. And so Paul says to the Corinthians, don't look at these other outward circumstances and try and decide whose God is blessing. Judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. At, each, at that time, each will receive his praise from God. If your life is not going as well as you'd like compared to other people, don't assume that God likes them more than you, or that they're more holy than you, or that God's somehow displeased with you. Judge nothing before the appointed time. At that time, each of us will receive praise from God. And this is the third lesson I would draw. First lesson, Jesus is our leader who will never let us down. Second lesson, don't judge by this life and this world. Judge by the next. And the third lesson is this. Maybe sometimes we're like Judah. Maybe there's something in our lives. Well, you know, not as bad. I don't think any of us would ever sell our brothers into slavery. May we never betray our daughters-in-law. May we not be randy old men, lecherous old men. But maybe some of us do some of the things that bring shame to God or dishonor our families or dishonor us, ourselves. Let's take a little bit of hope from Judah. Because there are very few mistakes that are fatal. With all of his flaws, God still engaged with Judah. With, despite all of his flaws, God still blessed the line of Judah. Despite his failings, the great King David was one of his descendants. Despite his inadequacies, the great King Jesus came from that lineage. So if you look at your past, or if even if you look at your present and think, God could never bless someone like me. The message of this story is that God blessed not only Caleb, the virtuous, but also Judah, the questionable. Let us never live like Judah. 
But let us live in the confidence that the God who blessed Judah can bless us. Let's pray together. Father, we ask for your spirit to be at work in our lives, that we will live like Caleb. And Father, we ask for your sovereignty to be at work in our lives, that we might enjoy the blessing of Judah without living like him. And Father, above all else, may courage and perseverance be ours, so that if we don't have either the blessing of Caleb or the blessing of Judah, we will persevere with you regardless. We ask for your work in our hearts through Jesus. Amen.